listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hansel. It's been a minute. Uh, it's part of the Skylight Books podcast series. We're back here for the first time in what feels like months. Might actually be over a month. Not sure. Time has no meaning. I'm your host and producer, Mick Kowaleski, alongside my stalwart co-host. <laughs> Maddie Gobo, events manager. Maddie, has it been like over a month? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, you went back to your full-time job, which meant that we could no longer hang out on Fridays and chat for an hour, which is what we were doing and was so nice. I know. I'm sorry. No, I mean, we all got to live. We all got to make money. <laughs> Capitalism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we took a break for your sake and um, also because I didn't have time to book any guests. Um, but I did book a guest this week, and uh, she's amazing. She's just one of my favorite people ever, um, Elisa Garcia, who works at Skylight with us. Um, she's, and she's just been around in books forever. She has so much wisdom um, and, and, and vision for how the bookselling industry could be better. And you, I'm excited for you all to hear, um, hear her thoughts in the conversation. Yeah. She's truly one of my favorite people I've ever met. Just the kindest, gentlest, funniest person in the world. And yeah. I miss one of the awful things, one of the worst things about the pandemic has been that I don't get to share a Sunday shift with her. So it's always nice to hear her voice. And the listener should be excited for the conversation that you're going to have later this episode. Yeah. But yeah, since I've been back at my full-time job and I haven't been back in the store lately, get, tell me, tell me what's going on at Skylight. I miss it dearly. I miss the people. What's, what's happening? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't been back too much either. You know, I'm working most of the time from home, but um, yesterday I did go in and worked in the store the full, the full day, um, which was my first time in a couple of weeks. Uh, so it was just really 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 nice a to get out of my apartment 
<laughs> just very hot right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> just like cooking it up here in our little treehouse. Um, and B, yeah, to see everybody, um, you know, I'm still having all these Zoom meetings and trying to work on all these projects and stuff, but I felt like spending one day at the store, I got so much more done on all these projects than I had in the previous weeks, just because I was able to like get everybody in one room and talk it out with our voices. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know why it's so much easier. I mean, I do know why. I think I think video calls kind of drain you in this way like somebody said yesterday that video calls are, are so draining because you don't get there's nothing reciprocal like you're just putting your energy into the screen and it doesn't come back to you the way it would if you were putting your energy into another person um, right well so I, you're I you're that. yeah like you're losing information like information just in terms of like um body language like even if you are on a video video call like I right now I can only see you from like the chest up so it's not like like if you're gesticulating off screen like that's information that I'm losing and it's also just like the you know the I think what we're used to from like looking at a screen is all it's kind of it just kind of like is a wash over you instead of like a an active participation and I feel like that's my big subconscious block when I'm doing a video call is that I have to like focus more on being an active participant and not just like a passive viewer. I think that's the big thing for me. So yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. I mean, in this video call, you can't even see my awesome Bernie Sanders eat the rich t-shirt that I'm wearing yeah. right now. Well, now Only you when it. you lean back and yeah, you're tilting it down and it's incredible. And I want <laughs> one. Please tell me where I can get one. <sighs> I'll tell you after we uh, after we hang up. I think it's I think the guy's name is Heavy Slime, but I could be wrong, so I'll double check. Yeah, um, I'll, we we could cut the, this out if you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So more more info about the store. Um, yeah. We're, so the main store is still open for in-store browsing with a mask and you know social distancing. Blah blah blah. I say this in like every a virtual event intro. So I'm like, ah, oh, social distance and yeah. Well, yeah. It's worth reminding. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the store is pretty, like, well-trafficked. I wouldn't say that it's, like, slammed. I have seen it slammed. It was slammed in January, in July, when we had just reopened. It was so busy. It was nuts. I couldn't believe it. Um, it seems like it's slowed down a bit now, which is better for the employees on the floor, but probably worse for our bottom line. Yeah. Um, but we're starting to feel like, I think everybody's starting to feel like we've got the procedures in place now and we've got the protections or as, as many protections as we could get in place. Um, and now people are starting to think about other projects and it's starting to feel a little bit more like the old Skylight because what I loved about working at Skylight pre-pandemic was, I mean, you know, we have managers, but the managers are also like very willing to let floor staff take the initiative on things that they're excited about um and uh, you know there were always like fun wacky projects in the works and now we're, we have a couple of new things in the works that i'm really excited about um we're putting together what we're calling book bouquets which are you know book bundles so uh curated selections of books on different topics um, that you can purchase for yourself or someone else 
Um, and that way, you know, you can either order them online as gifts or you can come into the store and, and check them out yourself. But um, the idea is that it's, uh, it's Skylight booksellers doing what we do best, creating these recommendations um, mm -hmm. that you can share with other people. So yeah. yeah, our first round of book bouquets, I think are hopefully gonna go live in September. Um, and they're gonna be, we're gonna do a kid's birthday bundle with a new tote bag design. Um, which I'm going to do, actually. I'm really excited. I was going to ask, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't get to do art so much anymore, but before I worked at Skylight, I was an illustrator. Um, well, in one of my other past lives, I was an illustrator. Uh, and, and a damn good one, too, if I <laughs> say so. Stop. Um, don't stop. I'm a Leo. I love, I so love good. the phrase. So good. The best. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I, I have missed doing design. Um, the previous bookstore I worked at in San Francisco, I did some merch design for them. I got to design a line of literary condoms. Um, Ooh, what? Really special. That's amazing. <laughs> Wait, I need to know more about that. Yeah, so this <laughs> other bookstore, example. this other bookstore is called The Booksmith, and they used to host this uh, live event that was just so much fun. It was called Shipwreck, and it was a competitive literary erotic fan fiction show. Um, so each month they would pick a different classic work of literature. They would have five writers and assign each writer a character from that book. And then they would have to write erotic fan fiction, um, starring that character. And then the pieces were all performed anonymously by, uh, the very wonderful Baruch Porras Hernandez. And then the audience would vote on their favorite, whether that be like the best writing, the most disgusting sex act. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest, the funniest joke sex. Um, you know, it was it was just so so rowdy and raunchy. And you know, they they would serve drinks at this event as well. So people were like really getting into it. <laughs> um, Amazing. So yeah, the condoms were as a promotional item for shipwreck. Um, and I did one that has uh, a drawing of Moby Dick on it, and it says "Dive deep." <laughs> <laughs> There's one, uh, well, I wanted to do an Alice in Wonderland one um, that shows, it's like a view through a keyhole and it shows a hand taking one of the little, um, the little decorated tea cakes and it says, eat me. Um, but then good. they were like, but they were like, well, Alice is a child. So maybe this is not a, a good message for us yeah. to send. Like, I was like, fair enough. All right. So we, <laughs> we yeah. did something different. Um, and then my favorite one, the one that I'm like most proud of, is um mr darcy drawing mr darcy and it says give me that d parentheses darcy <laughs> love it i love it oh, oh there's also so a great good. expectations one which is maybe like less of a sexy mood but <laughs> <laughs> what is wait i need to you can't uh, just say it, that it has a, it has a drawing of miss havisham like pulling up her dress to reveal fishnet stockings and it says great expectations I think it works both ways. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to work on something for a new tote, but, you know, it probably won't be um, quite, so, more, quite so steamy because it will be yeah. child-friendly. So. A little bit more family-friendly. <laughs> yeah, than, more family-friendly. All right, good. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Smart. Well, I'm excited to see what you come up with for that. And it's nice to know that uh, the great minds at Skylights are you know, being stimulated again. 
because it's been a long few months and yeah. like we need all the little projects we can get honestly yeah i mean i think i think all the booksellers feel this way that like we've been in this tunnel um of just like we have to survive and and the way that we've been surviving is just processing orders right and order processing mm -hmm. is so different from book selling as a job right. like and you know this because you were just doing it for your full-time job yep it's tedium in Total a word tedium. just data entry um yeah and data entry that if you get it wrong will create someone who wants to yell at you about it immediately <laughs> so right which is always fun um but yeah it's it, being a bookseller is the reason that we got into this is that you know we have busier minds like the drone like scanning and beeping and packaging you know that stuff is like really extra destructive for our mental states so that's what i'm saying i'm glad that <laughs> we the folks over there have something to do to put their minds to to get those brains working again yeah and i think you know like even though we were super grateful to get all of these this flood of online orders and um, it does feel good to get the books to our customers. It isn't everything that we're capable of, and it isn't really what feeds us as booksellers. Um, you know, I think I think it's always I I love to harp on community, but I I do think it's always about connection and community for for me mm -hmm. anyway. Like that's why I have stuck with bookselling for so long is that like you get to meet all of these different people and you get to have these kind of intimate moments with them where you, you hear about what books really touched them. And then you try to give them something else that will touch them mm -hmm. um, or reach them. And there's none of that in online book selling, you know, you don't get that at all. And, and this is why Amazon is terrible, right? Because yeah. um, there is no intimacy with Amazon. There's only, there's only calculations and algorithms. Um, right. It doesn't. It doesn't help you deepen your understanding of the world to be recommended to read a book that's exactly like the book you just read. Um, and I think you know, there's no way to replace what booksellers can do with machine learning, um, right? Because it is all about feeling and emotion, and you know, the kind of mysterious ways that people's imaginations work. Um, I don't know right. that that technology will be able to replace the bookseller though it has is certainly trying <laughs> it's trying but it's also failing because i think one of the reasons that we're still around is because i think people um recognize and i think subconsciously sort of like intuit that when you go to a bookstore and you get a recommendation from another human you are absorbing and receiving part of them you know it's not just a matter of like oh if you like this you like this it's like well, if you like that, like I like this book. So I, I recommend this book. And that really is like offering a piece of yourself and your personality to another person. And, you know, maybe offering a perspective that they hadn't considered before and uh, something that they had that they wouldn't have gotten out of an algorithm where it's like, oh, you like, you know, David Foster Wallace, we're going to offer you like all of these, you know, post ironic modernists you know but like maybe you would like yajasi or you know like someone that's not directly a descendant of that literary vein um to mix metaphors but uh 
yeah, that's the, that's the thing that I think will keep us around. And I'm glad that we found ways to foster that even when we can't actually be as intimate as we used to be. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I had a smart thing I was going to say, but now I've forgotten it. But, but I think, that, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, the thing about the, the capitalist consumerist culture we live in is that it, it always, it relies on reproducibility and sameness, right? That like, mm -hmm. if you bought something, you will probably buy it again, or you will buy something similar to that. But that really isn't how people experience art. That doesn't right. work for how you experience art because art can hit you in ways that you can't anticipate, right? Like if you right. if you walk into a museum and you see, um, you know, a sculptural installation that reminds you of something that happened to you in your childhood, and mm -hmm. that is a profoundly moving experience for you. I mean, how do you like that? Can't really be monetized there's no way to predict if that's going to happen for other consumers of that artwork um, and there's no way to predict if that could happen for you with a similar artwork um, mm -hmm. just using sculpture as an example but I think it works exactly the same way for books um, that you know again I, I feel like there is a fundamental dissonance between the business of selling books and the experience of art like Mm -hmm. Those things are going to be at odds with each other um, if you don't acknowledge that success is not always reproducible with with the promotion and uh, production of art um, and consumption of art. Like, like, and this happens with publishers all the time, right? Where they'll give an author an enormous an enormous advance for their debut. Um, banking everything on it, and then it flops, and then that author can never sell a book again. <laughs> yeah, um, no matter how good it actually was, right? Yeah, because there's, yeah, there's just no, you have to, there, you have to take these risks, and you have to trust in a way that um, capitalism doesn't want you to allow yourself to trust or be vulnerable. Right. Yeah, because, yeah, I like the word risk that you use, because I think Part of it is like you you can't guarantee that someone's going to like something nor would i want to you know have that guarantee to me like i like the i don't know danger is a very dramatic word to use in this context but like the danger of being like oh yeah i might really not connect with this i really might not like it but that's what makes those moments of connection so much so much more thrilling and exciting mm -hmm. and fulfilling you know it's that there was a chance that I did I wouldn't connect, but I have, and that's beautiful in a weird way. So, mm -hmm. like the algorithm that predicts whether you're going to like something is, I think, of a, a false concept to begin with. <laughs> like, like it's a lie. Like, yeah, it, there's no algorithm I think, at least that has you know come up with to to really consider all those variables that you're talking about of like you know, symbols and, you know, nostalgia and like, you know, all these different emotions that come up when you really connect with art, so. Isn't there a, a Vonnegut story about a novel writing machine? Like some, somebody invents oh, a machine that yeah. writes, that can, that can write any novel uh, that anyone like didn't know that they needed. Like you put, you kind of yeah. like put in your information and then the machine spits out the novel that you want. 
I can't remember what the outcome of that is. I'm sure it's not good knowing Vonnegut. <laughs> no, knowing Vonnegut, yeah. It's not an happy ending. <laughs> maybe, it just, maybe it just turns into the uh, in the Penal Colony by Franz Kafka. Yeah. Just another just a, just a writing, writing <laughs> machine that doesn't work the way it's supposed to no. story. Those writing machines don't work. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not a, it's not uh, an occupation that can be taken over by machines. I just don't nope. I, like. Yeah, I know that the future is AI, and I know that ninety percent of jobs will be eliminated by robots. Yes, I've heard this, this statistic before, but I continue to believe, <laughs> perhaps right. fool, in a in a foolish way, that writing and reading and selling books um, are are cannot be adequately reproduce by machines well so far you're being proven correct we're not dead yet <laughs> uh, so Mike, we'll get you, on oh I, sorry go ahead i want to i want to ask the question before we before we move into the interview what are you reading mick so i finally i it's gonna be funny for people who actually keep up with this segment and the fact that i was reading beloved by tony morrison for like two straight weeks a month ago and i finally finished it this morning because i woke up at 6 30 and i just was like i'm gonna finish this thing and of course amazing no words that haven't been said before about her as a writer and she's the goat i don't, I don't know what, to, what else to say so <laughs> i was coming through my roommate's uh bookshelf afterwards because i was you know still wanted to read and found after the Winter by Guadalupe Natel. Natel? I, I, I think it's Natel, sure but I, we could Natel, be yeah. this. So I started that this morning and 20 pages in, really, really digging it. So yeah, that's what I'm reading. Uh, what about you? Helps to have roommates with a great book collection, right? Yes, oh yeah, yeah. The, uh, you can't put a value on that. Can we reveal sort of. that your roommate is also a skylight? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we should do that. Yeah, shout out to Ben. He's appeared on this podcast before on the Hansel. He hosted an episode with Sydney, I believe. Um, and uh, yeah, he's my roommate now. And it's great because I have someone to go to the store for me and grab things when I need them. <laughs> if he was in the apartment today, he's working shift right now, but he would sure jump on maybe next time yeah we'll bring him on next time yeah absolutely what about you what are you reading um i'm in a bit of a slump i finished reading diane cook's new novel um the new wilderness uh, a couple days ago which was a really fun and wacky ride um it's about it's basically about this group of people in a near future slash parallel universe um, where most of the world has been developed and all that's left is this one last wilderness. And this group of people are part of an experiment to see if human beings can coexist with nature. Um, and they're basically airdropped into this wilderness and told to live nomadically and, you know, only produce so much trash and only kill so many animals and, you know, make it work um, yeah. <laughs> um and yeah it was a really i mean it's very dark to read it now as our entire state is on fire um mm -hmm. but i think 
it was also a beautiful kind of an escape um, in a way because you get to be alongside these these city dwellers who are adapting um, to all these conditions that ancient humans adapted to many, many mm -hmm. years before. Um, and there's, there's a very beautiful mother-daughter relationship at the heart of it. Um, the book's been nominated for the Booker, uh, or long-listed for the Booker Prize. Um, the writing's really good. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what other Californians think of it, because I think we are mm -hmm. kind of like living through a flashpoint right now and um so much of the book is about you know what do you do at these crucial moments of decision how do you kind of like move forward um just to survive uh yeah. and what will you sacrifice um, timely as hell <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that feels like a lot of things are timely as hell right now a lot of a lot of artworks and books um are being brought up as being timely. I wouldn't say that this is timely. It does feel sort of like it takes place out of time or in a, in a parallel time. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't have quite the like moralizing that you would expect from a dystopian novel coming out in 2020. Um, so I, I respect that about it. Um, yeah, that's refreshing. It's, it's, it's kind of happy to, to dwell in some ambiguities. Um, but yeah, I don't know where I'm going to go, go after this one, after having finished this book. I'm, yeah, I, I'm open to recommendations if you know of anything I should check out. I did just order a giant, giant cookbook um, that's all regional Italian cooking, uh, like peasant oh, food. Well, maybe, awesome. I'll, maybe I'll cook you something from this book someday. <gasps> we'll find the Calabrian section for you. <laughs> My heart. My heart, really. <laughs> a little trade-off. That'd be awesome. All right, well, let's get to your conversation with Elisa. Uh, we've kept the, the listeners from her too long, been hogging them all to ourselves. Um, <laughs> great conversation. Everyone's going to enjoy it. Maddie, let's try not to wait a month to record another one of these. I agree. Well, we'll be back soon, I promise. Well, you'll definitely be back in like I'm I'm always, seconds. I never leave. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I'm just it's on me. the podcast. Yeah. I'm just like waiting for someone to show up and talk to me on the podcast yeah. all the time. Yeah, exactly. You're just waiting by Zoom, just <laughs> hoping that someone will call and be on the podcast. Yeah. But yeah, maybe we. Oh, maybe right. we should do a call-in episode of. That would be self. sick. Yeah, I don't know how to coordinate that, but let's figure it out. Find out. Figure it out. Who knows? <laughs> Whatever. All right. I'll talk to you later, Maddie. And right. uh, to the listeners out there, enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to a new episode of The Hand Cell. It's been a while. We had a couple of weeks off just because things were a little bit hectic in the skylight world. Um, but today we're back and we have a fantastic interview. I'm really excited to talk to this person. Um, Elisa Garcia is my coworker at Skylight Books. Um, we bonded very early on about our love of children's books and obsessively organizing the children's section. <laughs> um, and Elisa has just been um, just a, a really wonderful support for everybody at Skylight. I think, I think she does a lot for all of our communication and uh, mental health and emotional <laughs> support. Um, she's, she's just a great person to, to work with and, and to learn from. So I'm really excited to talk with her today. Hi, Elisa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Maddie. Thank you for uh, that lovely introduction and uh, my debut on the Skylight podcast. Yes, the audio debut. 
Yes. Exciting. Um, so today you are off from work. You're not, at, you're not at the store, but, um, you are working in the store most of the time. Uh, you're working in the annex, which is closed off. And, um, you want to just like tell our <laughs> listeners sort of what your days look like now and maybe how that's different from the way they looked before, before all of this, before the COVID, the shutdown, the end of the world, etc. Right. Well, I have never, like, every other retail worker in the world have never had to work under the conditions of a pandemic. And it's required a lot uh, from everyone, from management to the team that's on the floor, to um, shifting our business in a way that is as safe as possible for everyone and can kind of honor like the work that we did previously um, as booksellers and being able to interact with people in a very like personal and fun and intimate way. And to translate all of that under immense stress and via the internet and the website has been a very, very big challenge. And I think we've done our best and are continuing to learn, but it's been a very, very difficult process for everyone. And, you know, shout out to the essential workers that haven't had a break at all at Skylight. We were able to close for a bit and kind of regroup and try to come up with like a plan of action. But I just have so much respect for like frontline responders and the people that provide necessary services um, for all of us during this time. And uh, although I feel like books are necessary <laughs> and I am really lucky, all of us to be working and getting paid at this time, it's, it's a lot. And um, moving into the holiday season, we're gonna try to do our best to stay safe and uh, bring a little bit of joy and literature to the world and especially to Los Angeles amazing store, amazing city that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really struck me throughout this whole thing among, among our staff is just like how creative everyone has been and just figuring out, you know, okay, so here are the conditions of the world we live in now. How can we not only adapt to them, but also bring some of the things we loved about our old worlds into this new one? Um, and that's not an easy task at all. Um, because yeah, like there's so much now of book selling that takes place away from the customer, right? Like you're, right. you're now kind of working primarily without interacting with customers directly. Um, at, at all. And you know, that, that's, that's a really sad reality. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question completely, but I went from working on the floor with everyone and interacting with customers and doing um, my other job at Skylight Prior was receiving and which was very nice solitary time which I got to see like all the books that were coming in and now uh, my job has completely shifted basically to data entry and order fulfillment which is something that um, I'm not really that good at but um, I'm getting better and but it's just literally that, like, there's like no communication and it's great to see what people are ordering and um, especially right in the time with like, I think people are, are calling it the, the Black Spring or the changes that 
are happening right now in society um, to see what people are ordering right now and um, not being able to direct people to different books, which I think are better, but <laughs> <laughs> but to to see um, you really get a weird temperature looking at the books, although I do honor people's privacy. <laughs> <laughs> that's important when people are ordering online but you, i really get to see what people are buying which is maybe one of the maybe interesting angles of my job at this moment to see you know tony morrison angela davis all these uh, these amazing authors that i've loved for so long to finally be getting some kind of recognition and these sales which i think is really really important at this time yeah the sales have been crazy i mean you know we're not operating at full capacity, but we had such an influx of orders in, in June and July, and it was all thanks to people deciding they wanted to do their anti-racist education and they wanted to buy books from a local bookstore. Right. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's been one benefit of kind of becoming more of a book distribution warehouse than a, <laughs> a you know, a little neighborhood browsing spot. Right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's wild because uh, now if you go over to the arts annex, it just looks totally different from what it did before. You know, before it was all those beautiful art books all face out, you know, comics and zines. It was very eclectic. And now it's like this regimented sort of like mini warehouse where like there's just stacks and stacks of books everywhere. I mean, I know you guys have gotten through a lot of those orders and those book stacks have been much reduced. But for right. a while it was like it really did look like a, a little mini Amazon warehouse. No, it, yeah, I was calling it baby Amazon. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's sufficient Amazon. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's also just very sad to see um, the annex closed and not open to people at this time. We just, we just can't accommodate people in browsing in that spot. And, and just to see like the neighborhood and how, you know, a lot of it is boarded up and how it's affecting uh, the community surrounding Skylight as well. Like the movie theater has been closed this entire time. And I'm not advocating for it to open because it's not safe, but it's just, again, like the impact. I think I felt like a lot of people when it was so hot, it was just like, wow, I really miss being able to go to a movie right now. That's so many people in Southern California, when it gets unbearable, we either go to the beach or to the movies, you yeah. know, so. They have the best air conditioning. Yes, and the best coca-cola <laughs> <laughs> so true yeah um elisa could you tell us a little bit about like your journey into book selling like how did you get into the book world and um how did you end up at skylight and what happened in between well uh i will try to be as brief as possible uh <laughs> because like every every bookseller have this long romantic history about it <laughs> and um but honestly I am the daughter of a reference librarian. Uh, books have always been a really significant part of my life and I really wanna honor my parents for, for doing that for me. But my dad was a, a reference librarian my whole entire life. And um, he worked at UCLA, UC Berkeley, and um, was a, an important part of uh, founding and uh, maintaining the Chicano Studies Resource Library at both of those campuses. Um, and the one time that I got into a lot of trouble as a kid was when I um, ripped a barcode 
off of A Wrinkle in Time <gasps> from the Richmond Library and tried to like steal it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I was grounded for a very long time. And thus I learned to respect public property and literature all in one. <laughs> was that just because painful episode? You're just a huge Madeline Lingle fan and you just had to have your own copy? I mean, as a, as a child, the two books that impacted me were, uh, well, there's like three, but the first book that I ever fell in love with and the first fictional character I ever fell in love with was, uh, of course, The Little Prince. Um, I got the chicken pox and one of my dad's coworkers had sent that home for me to read while I was sick. And I just, I literally fell in love with him. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so, so that was like a big impression. And then the second book why I really felt moved was uh, A Wrinkle in Time, oddly. I, you know, I reread it recently and I'm like, mm, this is not as great as I remember it. But that was the first book in my life I ever tried to steal. And then <laughs> uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. I'm really showing my age right now. <laughs> no, these are all great picks. I mean, these were huge books for me too, which also maybe right. shows my age. But um, hang on yeah. one second. There's uh, Lawnmowers starting up oh yeah another window okay all right recording again um all right so you started out your your book career stealing Madeline Langle <laughs> and then you had to pay penance by working in the book world right that's that's how that works that's how that's how the book universe works um so fast forward I went to college and was actually thinking of becoming a librarian myself and, um, but I got pregnant and I had my first son. And so I was able to graduate from UCLA, but I became a, a mom at the age of 21. And that kind of changed the course of my life. And as a single mom, um, I just started working at the mall and was like, wow, like this isn't what I envisioned my life to be. Um, but I was able to uh, work at a store. It was called Premier Aslan and it sold like a lot of um, like Frida Kahlo prints and a lot of art from Mexico and the owner, I used to shop in there all the time. And I was, I was always asking him for books and like, do you think you could order books? Like, I think if you had books about Frida and Diego, um, people would buy them because you're selling the art and it would be dope for people to actually know more about these people. And so he ended up actually um, hiring me and it was like my first little venture into being like a book buyer. And um, that's when I, I learned a little bit about the business. This is like before the internet. And I would just like go into other bookstores and look at the back of the publishers, you know, like who published the book and then, you know, would like write them and ask them for catalogs. And uh, so that's initially like how it started. And then um, at the same time, there was a, a Chicano bookstore that is unfortunately no longer in Highland Park. Um, it was called Arroyo Books. And it was like a, a Chicano bookstore. Like they had all kinds of books like by Ana Castillo and Sandra Cisneros. And it just like blew my mind. Like I had never thought that you could have like a bookstore with just, I mean, now, I mean, we're living in a time where we're seeing, you know, exciting projects like Salt Eaters or there's SO1 Books has been around in, in the city for a long time. But like as a young Chicana, like I just had never seen anything like that. And it left 
obviously like a really, really big impression on me. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I continued to work at Premier Aslan and ended up leaving there because I needed to, to make more money. And I just couldn't let go of the idea of maybe having a store and being it's just to see a Royal books was just like, Oh, maybe that's something I could do myself. And in 2000, which this is a long time later, I think my son was maybe like five or six. I opened up a Imish bookstore in this place called Mercado La Paloma, which is a great place. I encourage people to go visit it. It's uh, on Grand Avenue, right by USC. And it was, uh, at that time, I don't know what it is now, if it's the same, but they called it, it was a small business incubator. And it was a nonprofit. (laughs) And it was a way I just, I always remember this because it was like a way for low income entrepreneurs to start a business. I just think that's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, the incubator for me was a very successful project. Um, I was there, had my business there for two years. And they, you know, they, I can never say they subsidize. Is that the the word? They subsidize your rent. And, um, and I was there for two years and was able to save money and open up an account with, uh, Baker and Taylor, Ingram and, and, and book people, which is no longer around either. And, um, built up my credit line with them and then had my own store in Eagle Rock for, uh, seven years. And what was your store called? It was called Emish bookstore. And it's, uh, it's a Mayan word and, um, it has a lot of meetings, but the one that meant a lot to me was it, it means regeneration. Mm. And so it was basically like, uh, uh, I think they call it BIPOC now, right? Black indigenous person of color focused bookstore. I, as a mom, and like you, you said in my intro, I love children's books. So that was kind of like a huge part of the store. And I think why people started to come in. But I also carried like Noam Chomsky, um, books by about, you know, the Black Panthers, um, just things on indigenous studies. So things that they're clearly, obviously, in these days and times, we see there's such a demand for, but, you know, 12, 13 years ago, it was, didn't have the same energy behind it. So, um, but it was, it was a great experience. Um, I just had to close when the recession hit. And, um, I still fantasize about it sometimes and just seeing like new projects, like, um, I think it's called the salt eaters that's going to be opening up. Yeah. That's Asher Grant's, uh, bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, uh, the free black woman's library mm-hmm. or even uh, flow, which our coworker Jen was a part of. It just is really interesting and exciting to see the way book selling is evolving and changing and that people of color are having more of, of, of a, a visibility within it. And also that we're getting the financial support that we clearly deserve and that our communities deserve to have these spaces. So, Yeah. And I think it's so amazing to see projects like the Salt Eaters are getting funded purely by the community. Like I don't think, right. I don't think Asha Grant got grants to open the Salt Eaters. I think she just raised the money on GoFundMe and, and met her goal within like a week or something crazy. Um, so there's yes. like, 
there's like huge, huge community support now that maybe didn't exist back when you were opening your store. I mean, I think it definitely did, but there, there's the resources now, you know, like I remember for the store, <laughs> again, I'm dating myself. MySpace was a really big turning point for me because I was able to reach out to customers in a way that prior I wasn't able to, you know? And so it's very, very encouraging to see how this technology that we're a lot of times locked out of has been able to actually start benefiting our communities. And I'm very, very excited about that and to see uh, what comes next. You should definitely have Asha on the, on the pod. I've invited her. I think she's, she's a little overwhelmed with all of her opening stuff. Right. Yeah. She thought she would be in touch when she, when she got it under control. Good. Um, well, I, that's, that's, I'm glad she's super busy and I, and I can't wait for, for that place to open and to be able to buy books from them. Yeah. yeah I think, I mean, I think LA, a city like LA that is, is so enormous and has so many different cultural niches, like it stands to reason that there should be way more bookstores, right? Like, right. I feel like, and I think there were at, at one point, I mean, you would know better than me because I'm- Oh, a, girl, a my, res- <laughs> my resume is an obituary to independent bookstores in this city. Like it's, it's really, my, my resume is very depressing. <laughs> uh, the, the, the bookstore that made, after Arroyo Books, the bookstore that I worked at, um, and a lot of people at Skylight, at some point worked at was called Midnight Special Bookstore. And it was this huge, amazing bookstore on Third Street Promenade, which has changed tremendously. And I worked at Midnight Special uh, on two different occasions. I worked when I was a student at UCLA. And then um, I worked there, I think it was after I left Premier Aslan, I went back and I worked there for like another two years. And it was just an amazing place. The owners were abolitionists and are, I mean, the loss of that bookstore was just huge on the city. And I hope at some point uh, someone writes a book about that place because it was so significant and important. And um, it just shaped me so much as a, as a person and as a bookseller, like moving forward just to show. Because it was during the time when um, Amazon was blowing up and like Barnes and Noble had opened up on the block north of us. And then... Uh, what was the other bookstore? Borders on one block south from us. Oh my gosh, you're just surrounded from all angles. Uh, yeah, it, it was a very depressing time. And the store was able to survive for a, a good time after that. But um, I, would, I would definitely always talk about Midnight Special, that impact that it had on me personally and on this city was, was pretty significant. Hmm. So like as someone who's been been in the LA bookstore community a long time like what do you think it is that makes some stores stick around and others don't or is it just purely like luck and timing wow I wish I had a really educated answer for you um but I think again the impact of the internet Amazon in particular has just really devastated uh the bookselling community all over the world, but really in this city. Um, then there was the age of like the, what do you call those stores? Like those, like those huge box stores, you know, like Barnes and Nobles and like Borders. 
The other, the other interesting th- uh, threat that I guess I lived through were, um, and what, what was it like Kindles, right? Like everybody was into like e-readers, like when Oprah was talking about like e-readers. Um, so the business, considering that no one can make a real significant profit, <laughs> is very resilient, you know. And that's the thing that's frustrating, I think, as a bookseller and honestly, just like as a retail worker, is that we do so much for, um, and I'm not speaking specifically like like Skylight is evil in, in any way, but I mean, the system of capitalism is just devastating. You know, it is, and we're seeing that play out under COVID and all over the world. Uh, I can only speak to my experience and what's happening in the city, but um, it's it's booksellers, it's retail workers, it's essential workers that keep these places alive, and it's the community that that supports us, you know. And I think that's the the, the hard thing about the internet business is that it's great that people from New York and all over the world are ordering Skylight and trying to uh, keep us afloat. But it's 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 our neighborhood business. It's it's our it's our community that we've built over the years that I think keeps us alive. And how much rent you pay? I mean, I think that's the bottom line is is rent. Mm-hmm. Um. So I mean, I don't have any answers. I think uh, Skylight, like any other place, uh, we you know. There's a lot of things working against us. And it's my, it's my one hope that now during this time that like workers can come together and we, we could really address like the racism within the publishing industry, within the book selling industry, and that our voices can be amplified and we can really like hold people accountable for the situation that we're in and find a way like not to drag it or destroy it, but really to like recreate it. And I, that probably sounds like super naive. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, if it is naive, then I'm even more naive than you because I'm like, yeah, like let's <laughs> cooperatives. I love that idea. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just really hard to put into practice and um, it, it would require Skylight to make a lot of changes. It's going to require the book industry. It's going to require the ABA to make some really uncomfortable choices and moves. But I really feel like it's the only way forward because books aren't going anywhere. Books have survived everything. And Amazon is going to keep selling books for a really long time. And instead of competing with them, we need to figure out, well, I know what we do better, but how do we like monetize it in a way that's healthy and safe and we can really get back to the important things about book selling because before like a bookstore was a place, I mean, you were the person who was in charge of events. Yeah. Like we used to have ocean Vong come to the store. We would have, you know, events with Zadie Smith and people were, re- were able to come together and connect with these authors and hear their voices and get their books signed. Yeah. And we can't do that. And we probably won't be able to do that for a long time. So what are we going to do? Yeah. Let us know, listeners. (laughs) Yeah, if any of you have any ideas for how to save the book industry, email us at events at (laughs) skylightbooks.com. Slide right into our DMs. Um, Yeah, DM us. Um, (laughs) 
No, I, I mean, I think it's worth sort of teasing out what you're saying, which is like, you know, yes, book selling and the book business are part of capitalism, but we're also part of something else that doesn't really have to do with product and profit, which is community, right? Like, right. I for me, bookstores are magic places because they are places for people to gather and connect. Like, it is not really because of the books. The, the, the books kind of help you calibrate which kinds of people you're attracting. Right. Um, and I think it's so strange that we don't talk about that more as an industry. Like, we talk a lot about, you know, books can change the world and blah, 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 blah. But it's not just the books. It's the spaces and the people who create those spaces that can Absolutely. change the world. And I think mm-hmm. there's no monetary value really attached to that apart from, you know, however many books and events sell. So this is something I've been dealing with on the virtual event side of things, which is that, and maybe some of our listeners know this already, but um, virtual events don't sell as many books as in-person events at all. Not even close, not even remotely close. Um, Right. But they are the closest equivalent we have to reproducing the value of the space and the connection that you would have in person in our store. Um, right. And so I have to now weigh this value and be like, is it worth my time to create this space for people, even if I know I'm not going to sell enough books to even cover my own salary <laughs> for, for this t- the time that I'm producing this event? Um, and it sucks that we have to kind of straddle these two grounds because it would be so much easier to do my job if I knew I was working at, in, in a nonprofit capacity. And my job was right. to produce events and bring people together and, and create these conversations. But my job is also to sell books. And now right. those two aims are at odds with each other. Um, yes, they are, sadly. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm, in a weird, I'm in a weird pressure point myself, and I think Skylight is too, where we're like, okay, so the first thing we thought about adapting to COVID, which is that we could just take all of our events online and, um, you know, kind of operate as usual that's not true or possible so then what do we do um and I've come up with I have some ideas that I've been working on and that we've talked a little bit about but um I'm just curious like you know and and don't feel like you need to like solve my problem for me (laughs) or anything like that but I'm just curious like what do you think where do you think book selling could go like you've already mentioned that you want to kind of recenter the workers um, and, and the commitments that they make to each other into the store and, and the way that they're treated. Um, but yeah, like are, how, how, what are some ideas that you have or any, if any, or like, what are some dreams? <laughs> just the um, broad. <laughs> well, again, I think a lot of these dreams are coming true seeing like again I just keep talking about it but like the you know the free black women's library an amazing amazing project which is growing and um, I personally don't know any of the women I I would love to meet them and talk to them but to see um, what they're doing and uh, doing I think you know I think they I'm a patron of the Black, of the Free Black Women's Library, but I don't know exactly how they operate like on a, on a daily basis. And I know they've obviously been impacted, but this idea of lending libraries, um, the feminist uh, library on wills is the same thing. 
um, seeing projects like the salt eaters and, and not having to go this traditional route of like going to a bank. It's just like going to your community and being like, look, I want to do this. Uh, help me do it. Um, the thing that I, you know, that I always did even when I had my store was to do pop-up events and to go to like, again, a lot of these things aren't possible right now, but like, you know, going to farmer's markets or going to like street fairs and setting up, uh, my little stall and just taking books, which I thought were great, you know, and talking to people about them and having people learn about authors that they didn't know like before, like, again, I think not to be romantic, but book selling is about the interaction, you know, and the only reason Amazon sells books is because they're so damn cheap. Yeah. You know, and fast. Yeah. It's just like, uh, I'm in like, Someone reads an article and, you know, no judgment, but someone literally, like I do it too. It's like, oh, I see something and I'm interested in it because my scrolling brain is only interested in something for like 72 hours. But <laughs> if I can order a book and it'll be at my house, like in, you know, two days, like, I guess, you know, and I think that's, that's the only success. That's why they're successful, you know, and, and in this environment, they're going to continue to probably be successful. but is that interesting? Is it, is it building any sort of community? Is it building connections to people? No. I mean, it's good for authors. I have friends that are authors that need to sell books. I, I feel horribly for all these great books that have come out this year that are getting no attention, you know? And um, so I just really feel like it's about um, communities that haven't been represented to be able to kind of like take control more of the narrative and, and the business and just being resilient and like creative. And I think it's just this uncertainty. We don't know what's happening. And so we're all just doing our best in the moment. But I think once the dust settles, I don't know how long it's going to be two or three years. I'm really excited to see what, what could become new, you know, like, also, I'm tired of Indies Next. Can we just do something different now? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, what's your beef with Indies Next? Uh, they had American Dirt on the cover one one month, and oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. I just, I just kind of feel like. Also, do people? Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think people get paid for Indies Next. Like, if you write a blurb for them, no, you don't get paid for that. That's crazy. <laughs> I well, mean this is, what this is what you're saying that like not only does book selling live and die on the labor of booksellers but so does the entire publishing industry like booksellers are doing an incredible amount of uncompensated labor um for for books and for authors because they love books and they love reading and it's like this is this is part of the thing we need to confront this is part of the hard conversation that we need to have is that booksellers the least resourced most high pressure most customer facing um lowest paid positions <laughs> in the book industry is where most of the actual um life of a book happens right that like booksellers blurb the book early so that other reviewers and other bookstores find it and order it booksellers set up events and 
pre-order campaigns. Booksellers, uh, you know, hand sell the book. They make it their staff pick. They create lists um, recommending other books like it. You know, there's so much that booksellers do that happens sort of in this gray area where we, we may or may not be on the clock. Um, you know, we may be getting paid our minimum wage or we may not be getting paid for, the, for that work at all. Um, but the publishing industry could not function the way that it functions without all of that labor from booksellers. And all of that free labor from booksellers. Yeah. yeah. And I would really, I would personally, you know, without uh, making any of my contacts angry, I would personally like, <laughs> like to see publishers acknowledge that more. I mean, they do a lot of lip service toward booksellers and they, you know, they put on Winter Institute for us and, you know, send us goodies and things. But I think it's, I think it's very, very much high time for an industry-wide conversation about how essential booksellers are to the industry, if not, you know, to the world as essential workers. Um, and, and how, you know, the publishing industry could provide us with more security and sustainability in our positions. Because um, every single bookseller I know has worked at like 10 different stores. And that's just a function of like, you know, you don't get paid enough. Uh, they don't have enough hours for you. They're, you know, the store fails. Like there's just no, like, there's no like company job in bookselling that you can sit in and be comfortable in for, you know, for the course of a career. Like booksellers are the least, it's a very insecure position. Um, and it's, and it's, I mean, this just really crystallized for me when you were saying this is that, you know, a living wage for all workers is necessary and long overdue um, as a bookseller for sure. Um, but I also feel like the gatekeeping, I mean, that's the thing that I feel a lot of guilt about just like as a woman of color is that um, I get to work in an industry where like, I don't even know how many Chicanos, Latinx people work in this industry, you know? And one of my really fu big frustrations is that like any industry, right? They're like, oh, well, have you worked at a bookstore before? And to survive, maybe going back to what we we're talking about earlier, bookselling really, really, really needs to get behind people of color and giving us opportunities to not just even own our own bookstores, but to work in them. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's, again, it's a frustration of seeing, like, all these wonderful books on the bestsellers list right now. And people want to learn about racism. People want to learn about the experiences of people of color, but you're still not hiring us. You know, you're not giving us these opportunities. There's no bookstores in our communities, unfortunately. There are some like Esawan or like I said, a Royal Books, like it was in Highland Park. But where is like a young person of color supposed to get bookstore experience if they don't exist in our communities right now? Mm -hmm. And I just think that is essential to the future of bookselling in this country and in this in the city absolutely because um a lot of people i mean i'm old i've been i've been a bookseller jesus for like at least 24 years now Ooh. and i know <laughs> and and uh I was joking, I think, with Charles, and he's like, oh, when are you going to, you know, bring your daughter, have her work at the store? And I'm like, I'm not introducing her into this life of poverty. No way. 
someone in my family has to make money at some point, you know? Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's like a privilege to work in a bookstore. It, it truly is. And it shouldn't be that way. It yeah. makes, that makes me really sad. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I think, you know, like publishing is now talking this big talk about how, you know, they want to publish all these own voices stories and they want to, you know, have all these like great debut authors of color that they're really blowing up. But it's like, yeah, you can do all that. But if the people selling those books are all white, like, is that really, are they really doing the best job selling those books? Are they really finding the right communities who need those books? You know, like I, I, there's a real echo chamber problem. Right. Um, and, you know, like whenever we get a new bookseller at Skylight, you learn very quickly that, I mean, everybody has their specialty. Everybody has their mm -hmm. kind of section that they love to sell. And if you have a staff that's all white people, odds are they're mostly going to be selling books by white authors. Right. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's just really important to have a diverse staff at every level of publishing, including book selling, um, in order to support these authors who are finally getting book deals, these, these authors of color who are finally getting book deals, because it's not enough for them to just have the book deal. They also need to have that community and that support so that people find their book and, and right. the people who will really connect with it will find that book. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think what you're saying is, is spot on and um, definitely I want to see progress made and I want to see these conversations. I want to see some uncomfortable conversations happening. <laughs> for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it has, it has to. And, and I think we're in a unique opportunity right now to like, to really have them and to like build, because if not, I just, I don't see a future for the book industry and we got to do it. You know, it's, it's long overdue and it seems like people have the capacity in the space maybe now to make the changes that that are necessary i hope so yeah because there's, there's a lot of freaking really good books coming out right now and i would love to talk to people about them <laughs> <laughs> well is there anything you want to talk about uh right now before we say our goodbyes any any books you want to plug to our listeners oh, okay yeah real quick um oh one more other thing going back to uh we were saying the future of book selling and I'm sorry, I skipped over this and I'll make it brief, but the no name book club. Yeah. I am like a huge fan of her, her, her work, her music, but she started uh, this book club and I think it's really amazing. And it shows the impact that people can have. She doesn't, she doesn't have a store. It's not a business. She just started this book club and uh, I'm reading uh, Playing in the Dark, which is one of the choices for this month uh, by Toni uh, Morrison. I've never, I've read a lot of Toni Morrison's fiction, but I haven't read too much of her nonfiction. Um, and the other book they chose this month was The Vanishing Half by uh, Brit, Brit Bennett, yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was able to read that because I got a galley and it was great. Uh, but the book that I, I think might be my favorite book of the year is The Death of Vivek Oji. Is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, by Aweke Emezi. Is that how you say her name? Uh, Akweake Emezi. Akweake Emezi. Yeah. It's the most beautiful book I've read in a really, really long time. I really encourage everyone to read it. Yes. Check that out. So The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweake Emezi. Mm -hmm. Elisa's number one pick, followed by The No Name Book Club. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, Elisa, is there anything else you want to talk about or, or bring up before we kind of wrap up? I don't want to keep you for too long. I know you got stuff to do. Uh, no, thank you for uh, the opportunity. I feel like um, I should participate more, and but I get frustrated by the process. So I just want to thank you uh, for inviting me. And uh, shout out to Mick and the team at Skylight. Uh, it's I really miss everybody, and I, I think we are we're, we're all doing our best, and we really do actually deeply appreciate our customers. It's just a very difficult time for us, and I would just ask that people be kind and be patient to um, all essential workers right now. Um, and oh, I'm ex I read it already, but I'm really excited to talk to everybody about the new Elena Ferrante book. Ooh, wait, The Lying Life of Adults? Is that the Yeah, book? it comes out, I think, September 1st. I can't say, I don't, I don't. You don't even have to give me like a one word, one word adjudication, nothing? It's just great to read something new by her. I, did you, did you, did you watch the TV, sh the series of My Brilliant Friend? I, I haven't yet because it's like very, super, very close to home. Uh, my grandma grew up in the same area. That's right. Yeah. I'm kind of like holding off for like when I really miss my grandma. I'm going to start watching. I mean, I really miss her right oh, now. Oh man. <laughs> I okay, I can't wait to what you hear about when you watch the series. I think it was really well done, but I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not from there, so I would love to hear your opinion on it all. I I think it's really beautiful. They it's shot so beautifully and uh but yeah, so the new Elena Ferrante I, I can't wait to talk to somebody about it. So pick it up. It comes out, I think, September 1st, like just a few weeks away now. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, exciting. Mm -hmm. All right. Oh, well, thanks so much, Elisa. This was a really good conversation and it, um, you know, kind of fed me for the day. <laughs> like stuff I actually <laughs> want to talk about. <laughs> no, it's great to see you. And um, my other little side project, I guess I would mention is that, um, like you, you had a podcast in the past, right? I've listened to some of your episodes. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, raw material. Yes. I highly suggest that people check out Maddie's uh, previous experience with the podcasting. <laughs> but my, my other thing that I love is randomly sad songs. And I do have uh, a show that I do with my friend. It's on KQBH. Uh, it's a community radio station in Boyle Heights. And I have a podcast called Heartbreak Monday. What? and uh, I didn't know this. <laughs> and uh, we specialize in sad songs uh, twice a month on Monday nights. Oh, my God. I am <laughs> tuning in. Wait, so this is tonight. Um, actually, it, 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 would, it would be. No, we're off this week because it's only, it's only twice a month. Okay. All right. All right. But yeah. Cool. Okay. Monday nights, what time? At nine, but then we also we also have a mixed cloud, so I'll send you the link to that. It's, oh it's called Heartbreak Monday. Wow, Elisa, you're so cool. <laughs> I always like learn cool stuff. Every time I talk to him, I'm like, wow, Elisa, there's like more cool stuff I didn't even know about Elisa. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> I mean, I will say in closing that booksellers um, are some of the most educated, lovely, beautiful people that I've I've known, and I I do feel really lucky, and I love our community a lot, and I want to. Shout out all the um, BIPOC booksellers that are all over in, in, uh, in this industry. And uh, I look forward to seeing what's next for everybody. Yeah. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.